Sure. All right. What are some of your favorite pies or donuts, Deanna? Maple bars. Pumpkin pie. Cherry pie. Cow patties. Grody. Raspberries. All right. I like the plain Jane frosted donuts. Those are my favorite. And when it comes to pies, Albertsons, blueberry has like, no, blackberry, what's it called? Boysenberry pie that they make. Has a little bit of, little bit of everything in there. So, Razzle, Razzleberry pie is what it's called. I can't remember. Anyway, it's got berries of every kind. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to do a little review. So if you haven't been here in a while or want to brush the cobwebs off your mind for Romans, we are going to be in Romans chapter 10 today. We're going to review the first nine chapters quickly. Hopefully my voice will hold out here. I've been healthy this whole time. I know a lot of you got sick after winter retreat, and then suddenly yesterday my throat started bothering me a little. I'm like, oh no, here we go. So hopefully, hopefully it doesn't continue too much. All right, chapter one. Invitation, Paul invites us to his apostolic ministry. Chapter two, we, we see a big theme is that we are spiritually encouraged to be spiritually circumcised of heart rather than, than just physically circumcised like the Jews were. Romans chapter 3, verse 11, Paul leads the, that chapter kind of this place where it says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Everyone is naturally a sinner. In fact, everyone, no one even really tries to be perfect. Chapter 4, we see the emphasis on spiritual circumcision of the heart again, and that when we are transformed of the heart, truly, if you would, one over to Jesus and truly listen to him, that good deeds follow heart transformation. We see in chapter 5, kind of three um, sermons right off the bat. First is that we are justified by faith, just like Father Abraham was, so that nobody can boast that Jesus gets the credit, we do not. God grants purpose in suffering so that even through suffering we actually become more like Christ, become, if you would, servants like Christ, or like the suffering <clears throat> servant. Okay, can you do me a favor and go get my water bottle and that blue bottle over there and get me a bunch of water? I think I'm going to need it. All right, and God um, pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Which again begs the question, well, why? Because nobody else would do that. Nobody else goes and rescues somebody while they're an absolute wreck or miseries. Unnatural, if you would. Chapter 6, we see that we will either choose to be slaves to sin and disobedience, or we will choose with our lives to be slaves to Christ and to righteousness. That there is, in fact, a defining decision that we're going to make. And whatever decision we make with our minds, our lives are going to follow that general trend. Chapter 7, he talks about, though even though we might choose, for example, to be slaves to Christ, there is still an internal spiritual warfare that is going on. And so there is conflict within us. And we're heavily influenced often by our environments, whether we like it or not. And our thinking is influenced by our environments. Um, but we want to obviously lean into the Holy Spirit so that we can be renewed of mind like Christ and live in, for example, with Christian community so that it's easier, because we're, again, we're influenced by our environment, it's easier to be a slave to Christ if you're in healthy community. Chapter 8, it talks about the holy adoption, that we are adopted as God's children, um, that we can, in fact, 
pray for others and spiritually intercede for them. Again, going kind of through that theme of spiritual warfare comes back up again. And that we can be more than a conqueror in Christ. Chapter 9 talks about how that God called everyone to him, that he died once for all, but not everybody is going to say yes. Everybody has the opportunity to respond to the gospel, but not everybody's going to say yes. And everyone who says yes is not going to be given the exact same assignment, that we're going to have different assignments from each other. So that's kind of where we left it off. So I'm going to recap the beginning of Romans chapter 10, where Paul is again kind of lamenting over, thank you, he's lamenting over his fellow Israelites, because again, the Israelites have grown up with this huge advantage. They have this huge advantage where they know the books of the Old Testament, they know the history, if you would, of God versus the rest of the world does not. Right, so the idea of God is foreign to them. The idea of a coming Messiah to the Gentiles is foreign to them. While it's uh, not a new idea at all, the Israelites are claiming they're eager for the Messiah to come. Right, The idea of following the Ten Commandments and following the laws is not new to the Israelites. It's something they're used to, that they're used to living by. The Gentiles, it's very new. They're used to letting anything go, right? Which, if you kind of think about it, our culture has a very Gentile-minded idea, right? What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. It's all relative. All those are very Roman, kind of worldly ideas. The idea of being dedicated to God is very uh, much, a, again, kind of an Israeli or a Jewish idea. It's, it's unique. And so they have this great advantage having all of those if you would, ideas in their culture and in their mind already, and yet many of them struggle and are misled by their traditions. Or in other words, they misinterpret the traditions. Right? Kelby talked about growing up in the traditions of the Lutheran, I think Lutheran church, you said? Presbyterian, Presbyterian church, okay. Presbyterian church. Well, a lot of those traditions are, are healthy and they create kind of healthy boundaries for you, but sometimes... If the goal becomes just following tradition, you can get distracted from having a relationship with Jesus and respond to Jesus, right? In this case, the Israelites, they get distracted by all of these Levitical laws and all their traditions, and so they completely miss the point of them all, and that is pointing, as we talked about in the earlier sections of Romans, pointing you to the Messiah and the coming of Jesus, right? And so Paul is, is if you would, the verse eight verses, I'm not going to read it, but he's kind of lamenting over this idea that Israel has missed the entire point of all of their traditions and all of their laws. And he's frustrated because he wants his friends, he wants his family, he wants his home community to respond to the gospel, and they've completely misinterpreted all of the purposes of the traditions of pointing them to the Messiah. And so he shifts gears here in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. We're going to pick it up. There, he, again, he drives home this point that, again, you're not saved by following all these laws. It's something else that brings you into relationship with God. Verse 9, he says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Right? This is different. This is different than going to the temple and making a sacrifice. This is different than if we were Catholic, going to the priest and confessing your sins, right? And saying you're atoned for. You're going to the throne of heaven, to Jesus. It says, for 
It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, or in other words, never be put to shame in the courts of heaven. For there is no difference between Jew or Gentile. The same Lord is Lord over all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Right again, verse 9 says, If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Again, this kind of points clear back to Abraham. Abraham was credited to righteousness not because of his behavior, but because he believed God. And it says he was credited to him as righteousness. Remember, God declared him righteous because he believed God and had faith in the Lord. Right? And that allowed Abraham to, if you would, to use kind of Paul's language, have a heart transformation because he believed in the Lord. And it changed the direction of Abraham's life. Again, kind of pointing back to that. Verse 10, he goes on and says, It is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So it's not just that I believe in my heart that God is real, that Jesus is real, that he died for me, but then I have to actually declare it to other people. And to say it out loud, that I believe in Jesus as Lord. Right? And that through this, again, through this believing, through this, again, to use Paul's language, circumcision or transformation of the heart, we are justified, we're made right before God. And that we, through that declaration of faith, Jesus says in another section of Scripture, he says, if, if you deny Jesus before men, he will deny you before the Father. If you profess Jesus before men, he will profess you before the Father. So it matters what we declare and what we say with our faith. The other thing that he, he brings in again, because he's talking to both the Jew and the Gentile, the Jews have these great traditions, and they're like, we are so special. We have this great history. If we follow these traditions, God will declare us righteous. And Paul's saying, no, he won't. The rules have changed now that Jesus has come. You have to declare Jesus as Lord with your mouth and profess him with your faith. So there's no difference between Jew or Gentile anymore. Right, the, the, the Jewish special history they have does not save them. Right, Growing up in the church for you and for I, if you've grown up in the church, does not save you. That is not what put, saves you before God the Father in heaven. And he also, at the same time, he's addressing also this racial bias that the Jews have, that they are this special ethnic people. And he's saying it doesn't matter between Jew or Gentile. Right? God is holistic in his inclusion. Every race under heaven and earth is going to have the same opportunity to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Everyone. And if you think about it through this kind of time period, that is, a, again, a kind of a radical idea. His inclusion of women and his inclusion of every race under heaven and earth is totally radical and is new at this time in history. That everyone gets an equal invitation to the kingdom of heaven. Again, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul makes it pretty clear. There is one way to the Father. One way, and that is through Jesus Christ. You know, he's called the uh, cornerstone. And there's a different set of scriptures. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna, can you grab the, the whiteboard for me and bring it up here too? Thank you. 
I'm going to show you an illustration in a, in a second. We're going to move on, and then I'm going to circle back around to this. All right, chapter 10, verse 14. He says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? In other words, how can you call on the name of Jesus if you really don't believe in him? That's silly. And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? Right? So the same kind of thing. How can somebody call on the name of Jesus if they've never heard of Jesus before? Or they've heard of Jesus, but they have a really lousy interpretation of Jesus. Right? Like, for example, in our culture, according to George Barna, who's the main researcher, and Americans, only one in two Americans have ever read even one script verse of the Bible before. In other words, 50% of Americans, and even more when it's younger in your schools, have never read even one verse of the Bible. So how can they possibly have an accurate description of Jesus if they've never read his word before? They don't. Right? They got some bias that's inaccurate. Most of our culture is actually clueless on Jesus of the Bible. So that's what Paul's saying. How can they believe in the one whom they have not heard or have not heard accurately? Right? How can they hear without someone preaching to them or sharing the word of God with them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? So again, if they, they need to have a basic knowledge, a proper knowledge of the gospel in order to really respond to Jesus. No one is going to respond to Jesus without an accurate understanding of who he is. They're going to have a bias that they have formed already based on culture that's inaccurate. And the walls of those biases have to be admitted by them and that they are wrong and torn down so they can get an accurate understanding of who Jesus is. They can't respond to Jesus until they have an accurate understanding of who he is. And Paul, you know, again, he, he's addressing this issue to the Romans that are clueless on the gospel. And again, in our culture today, he would say, I think, the exact same thing. All right, so who is this Jesus really? So I was, I was mentioning um, that Jesus, you know, he says in John 10, 10, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says in the Gospels that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, built on the prophets and, and the apostles. Oh, this is a dead marker, isn't it? <clears throat> he calls himself a cornerstone in multiple places in the scriptures. Isaiah mentions it multiple times. So I want to give you this picture that he's talking about, which often people misunderstand. So he calls himself the keystone, the cornerstone, the capstone. It's three different names. Usually in a building, the cornerstone is the building, or the big, huge stone in the corner of the building that you start building up from. <clears throat> A cornerstone can also be the very top stone that holds the arch together when you enter into a city that all the weight is put on. This is the most important stone. Whenever they, the Romans, for example, would siege, siege a, a castle or people in the old day, they'd fire cannons and projectiles at this stone here because if this stone falls apart, the whole wall collapses. If you would, it's the most important stone in the building and it's, that's why they call it the keystone or the capstone or again, the cornerstone. So what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I am the cornerstone, the keystone, the capstone. It's used three different ways in different parts of Scripture. And that no one comes to the Father or enters into the kingdom of heaven without acknowledgement of him. 
and it's built upon all the prophets, right? So you got in the laws, you got, you know, Moses and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all those people, and the ministry of the apostles he's going to mention as well. You know, Peter, James, John, and all those guys. And Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets, right, and their ministry, and that you have to acknowledge Jesus to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of the, the imagery he's working with that they would have understood, right? No one enters into the kingdom of God without acknowledging that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Paul uses that similar language that you must confess Jesus as Lord with your mouth and believe who he is in your heart in order to enter into his promises, enter into his fulfillment for your life, enter into the abundance he promises you. And when you do that, then transformation of your heart and your mind and your soul will start to happen. Ephesians 6.15 says, How beautiful are the feet <clears throat> who are fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Right? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Right? The good news of Jesus comes from the Holy Spirit and His presence. And those who are ready are eager to share it. And it's beautifully received by those who are hungry for, for the gospel. You know, most of us, when we get an opportunity to share the gospel, if we're honest with somebody who we don't know how they're going to respond and we don't know what they believe, how do you usually feel? Awkward, nervous, right? Maybe hesitant, a lot of us, right? Anxious, maybe, not quite sure how it's going to work out. You know, I always think it's funny when somebody brings up some conversation, I'm always like, all right, here we go, God. You know, I just say that little prayer in my head and just enter into it. No idea how it's going to go, but trust in the Lord. You know, I was just thinking that the spirit of peace comes and helps settle our angst when we're willing to obey the Lord and follow him in a conversation with our friends. And he gives us courage. Paul again says, and he does it in Ephesians, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news, right? Who are willing to say yes to the Lord when an opportunity arises. And they just share an honest assessment of what they know about the Word of God and help point people to the Jesus of the Scriptures. Because again, I can guarantee you that your friends in school, they have an opinion of Jesus, but at least 70% probably have never read a verse of the Bible and have an inaccurate description of who Jesus is. It's a very small group of people that have an accurate description of who Jesus really is. So my question that we're going to talk about more when we get to small groups, but are you ready to take some courageous steps with Jesus in your life? One of those being willing to say yes when Jesus puts opportunity in your lap to share the word of God with others. Romans chapter 10, verse 16, we continue, he says, But not all the Israelites accept the good news. Right? We've, we know that. Not everybody accepts the good news of Jesus. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Right? Isaiah kind of laments, even back in his time, who believes our message? Right? People are doubting. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I did ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Right? Of course they heard. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, 
their words to the ends of the world. Again, I asked, did Israel not understand? Right? Again, he's lamenting. He's asking, why aren't they responding like they should? They all claim they're waiting for the Messiah. They're all claiming they're hungry for Jesus. They're all claiming they want God in their life. Our culture might say we're all claiming we're good enough. Right? Can I be good enough? I want to go into heaven. The whole culture believes they're going to heaven, looking for heaven. But then I not ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and an obstinate people. Think of this contrast that Paul is lamenting himself. He's torn up over this because he's talking again about his own friends, his own family, and his own community. All of his own friends, his own countrymen. All day long, he says, I have held out my hands. God has held out his hands to them to a disobedient and an obstinate people refusing to respond to the Messiah they claim they've been waiting for. Claim they've been waiting to go to heaven when they die, but refusing to do what they need to to get there. Meanwhile, you have these other group of people. He says, I I was found by those who did not seek me, and I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. Paul, again, he's, he's giving an invitation to everyone, saying, listen, the Romans are actually hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who has the courage to go? That's his invitation. He's circling back around to Romans chapter 1. He said the Romans are hungry. This city is hungry for the gospel. They're going to respond in overwhelming number if anyone has the courage to go and to accurately and passionately share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, I think our culture is hungry for the gospel. I was talking to Austin. How many of you know Austin Howard? About a third of you. So if you don't know Austin, he's a great guy. He's a friend of mine and hunters and a lot of the folks that uh, go here know him. He's uh, going to seminary currently at Bethel in Kentucky where they had the big revival. Anybody hear about the big revival in Kentucky at Asbury Seminary? <clears throat> so that's where he's going to seminary. So he, I was asking him about it, you know, how crazy it was. And he goes, I didn't even realize it was a big deal until all of a sudden all these people start showing up in news cameras and I start getting phone calls from everybody asking me, what's going on there? He goes, we were just worshiping for multiple days, you know, just responding to the Spirit. We didn't realize this drawing all of this national attention until like Tucker Carlson, I guess, showed up to do a little interview with him. And then it got even bigger. But he told me, you know, this went on for about two and a half months. He said they had 30,000 people coming a day to visit him from all over the globe. He goes, you know what was sad to me about that situation? It's his words, not mine. He said people are so hungry to experience the Spirit of God that they're traveling clear across the globe and they don't feel like they can get it in their own church. Because that tells me that our entire culture across the globe, is incredibly hungry for the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. In our schools, on our sports team, in our community, all across our state and our country, all across this globe, people are hungry for the authentic gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They do not understand who Jesus of the Bible is. We have lost our touch with who Jesus really is. And Paul gives us this invitation to join him. That's that's the invitation he's he's inviting everyone he's writing this letter to, to join him in going to the Romans, to going to those who are hungry for the gospel. You know, he's lamenting Israel because he realized, listen, I only have so many years to live. Now, he doesn't know when he writes this, he's got nine years left to live. We don't know how long we have to live. I was talking to Julie about the interns we graduated with at Faith Chapel. I'm the only one who graduated from that program who's a pastor. Everybody else gave up on the ministry. And two of the people that graduated with me are dead. They died. One of cancer at 20 years old, right after he graduated. And one from texting while driving here in Billings, Montana, when she was 26 years old. You don't know how long you have to live. Right? Right? And again, we have this this invitation, and Paul is saying, listen, I realize, I don't know how long he has to live. Now, we know, because we know when he wrote this, he's got nine years left. He doesn't know that. All he knows is that I am beating my head against a brick wall, trying to get the Israelites to respond to the gospel, but they're not responding. But all these other people in Ephesus, in Corinth... In Thessalonica, in Galatia, they're responding to the gospel like crazy. And Rome is the ticket to the world because it's so influential. They're ready to respond to the gospel. Who wants to go with me? Because he knows he only has so much time, so he wants to go to where people are ready to respond to the gospel. So if he shares with the gospel with one person, they don't respond, he doesn't worry about it. He moves on to somebody who's going to respond. And he keeps going until he finds someone who's ready to respond to the gospel. Does that make sense? He knows he only has so much time to invest. It's like if you had 10 people you could talk to. And you go talk to one person, you got 10 hours, and each person needs an hour. And you go spend an hour, I'm just going to pick on Eden for a second. And I try to get on, get through to Eden, and I spend an hour and don't get anywhere. I spend two hours and I don't get anywhere. I spend three hours and I don't get anywhere. Do I keep going until I get to 10 hours? No! Right? I'm going to move on to Roland. (laughs) And when he responds, I get excited. And I want to invest enough that Roland can go help me. Right? So he's going to talk to Riley and he's not going to get anywhere. So he's going to give up and he's going to go talk to Kaylee. But you get the point? You guys are all worth investing in, all right? But when you, I learned this, you know, this is sad, but I learned this when, as a youth pastor when I was early on. I had this kid I cared a ton about, I spent a ton of time with, and this conversation was constantly circular, getting nowhere. And I realized after two whole years of investing myself with him, every single week, I'm like, what am I doing? I have all these other students who are responding when I talk to them. Why am I spending so much time with someone who wants to just hang out with me, but he doesn't respond to anything? So I stopped. Why waste yourself doing that? There's so much more abundant fruit out there. So if somebody doesn't respond to the gospel message and doesn't change their life and won't allow their heart to be transformed by the real person of Jesus Christ, I'm not saying don't be their friend, but don't pour yourself into them. you got other people that are hungry for the gospel of Jesus. And even if you're 12 years old, 15 years old, whatever, you don't know how much time you have. Your time is precious. 
Make sure you invest it well. So Paul laments this position that he's in because the people he actually wants to invest the most in are the Israelites, but they're not responding. And so he says, I'm going to Rome. Who's going with me? The people you care most about in your life, they may not respond. That's tough. So you position yourself so that you're ready to communicate to them and talk to them when they are ready to respond. But I encourage you to invest yourself where you're going to get the greatest return. Now keep praying for them, because he tells us in Luke, right, to pray persistently without ceasing. So we can pray persistently without ceasing. But sometimes practically pouring yourself into a dead end, it is what it is. Jesus gives us the opportunity to choose. And he honors our choice. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for the chance to be here with these students. Lord, I pray you would truly help us to be good soil. You know, I think of that passage in Scripture on the soils, Lord, of you, of just being essentially responsive to you, fertile, fruitful. It's not just about growing, but it's actually about multiplication. Lord, we don't want to just grow and learn more about you. We don't want to just grow and become more like you. That is fruitful in itself, but we really want to be multiplying people where we learn to invest ourselves into others as we are also investing in ourselves. That we'd, we would have others, our friends and our family and co-workers and teammates and classmates that we can also someday bring into the kingdom of God with you and celebrate with you, Lord Jesus. But I pray you would lead us to places that are fruitful and you would help us to be a fruitful, multiplying people. Lord, I love each and every student that's here, and I know you love them even more, and you know exactly what's going on in their heart and their mind and their spirit. Lord, you know who's incredibly fruitful, and you know who's incredibly calloused. Lord, I pray that wherever each student is, that they would begin in their mind to really ask the question, do I know Jesus of the Scriptures, Jesus of the Bible, the authentic Jesus, and am I allowing him to truly transform my life. Jesus, we love you. We pray we'd be moldable in your hands. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.